Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode, part two of a two-part series on occult symbols in cinema. This exact same symbolism years earlier in a movie called Gremlins 2, where you have this Donald Trump analog named Daniel Clamp, who is this Manhattan real estate developer who's clearly supposed to be Donald Trump, and he comes out for an interview, and the two microphones shoved them in front of his face are from stations 11 and 9, again, November 9th, the day he won the presidency. This podcast is supported by my good friends at Paranormal Contractors. Now, someone out there is dealing with unwanted paranormal activity in their home or business. Maybe this is you. This is nothing to be trifled with. You need to bring in a reputable, professional team to deal with this problem. Paranormal Contractors uses the latest technology and years of experience to thoroughly investigate, authenticate, and remediate your ghost or demon problem. Call. 1-866-724-0800. 1-866-724-0800. Or email them at paranormalcontractors at gmail.com. Paranormalcontractors at gmail.com. Check out their YouTube channel, Paranormal Contractors, for things that go bump in the night. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard Serrett. Welcome to your Wednesday. Robert W. Sullivan IV is standing by for part two of our conversation on occult or esoteric symbols in some of our favorite movies. Just a reminder that this Friday, I'll be sitting in for George Norrie on Coast to Coast AM. Jason Gerald, a recent guest on this podcast, 
will be uh, with me for the first two hours discussing Native American cosmology, followed by two hours of open lines. That's this Friday, Feb 8th, on Coast to Coast AM. Now, here's someone else who'll be joining me on Coast in March, Robert W. Sullivan IV is a Freemason, philosopher, historian, antiquarian, jurist, lay theologian, writer, mystic, radio TV personality, best-selling author, CEO, and lawyer. The Royal Arch of Enoch, the impact of Masonic ritual, philosophy, and symbolism, was his first published work, being the product of 20 years of research. In 2014, Robert published his second book, Cinema Symbolism, a Guide to Esoteric Imagery in Popular Movies. His third book, Cinema Symbolism II, More Esoteric Imagery from Popular Movies, was published in 2017. Robert Sullivan, welcome back for part two of our conversation on Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you doing? Oh, thanks, Richard. Thanks for having me back on. It's a pleasure to be here. Looking forward to uh, continuing our conversation from last time. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. So, uh, Cinema Symbolism, part two. And uh, you have um, uh, two books uh, and a third coming out, Cinema Symbolisms, uh, C- Cinema Symbolism 1 and 2. When can, we, can, when can we expect Cinema Symbolism 3? That's probably still about a year away, maybe a little less, maybe the end of 2019. I should, be, I should probably have it done probably around then. So maybe early, early 2020, maybe somewhere in there, I'm thinking. When, when people write a screenplay or a novel... Uh, I'm just wondering if sometimes these symb- the, the symbolism uh, is innate in or, or, or almost part of human DNA. In other words, if, if someone were to write about write a story and not necessarily have knowledge of Gnosticism or R- Rosicrucianism, or let's let's say they're they're agnostic, they've never read the Bible. Is it possible these things will still come out because a lot of this, a lot of this symbology is innate to the human condition? Well, I think that's a great talking point. Um, and what you're, what we're talking about now is this whole idea of the collective unconscious. Um, this is what Carl Gustav Jung, uh, the psychiatrist, talked about, and he inherited this idea from the Greek philosopher Plato. Plato called it the theory of forms, and what they said is there are these ancient motifs, mysticism, religion, mythology motifs that are just part of our subconscious mind. And uh, since since essentially filmmaking is a form of high art, uh, and a, a creative expression that, that in some instances, this material just surfaces regardless of the creator's intent. I have documented cases of this um, where, for example, um, in the Ed Wood movie, Glenn or Glenda, um, which is this very bizarre 65 minute movie about transvestism, uh, you will find one of the greatest examples of a Gnostic demiurge in there. It was played by the Bella Lugosi, by, by the famous actor Bella Lugosi, who played Dracula. Uh, and he plays this lesser sub god who just wants to tinker with mankind and pull the strings. It's his exact words. Um, and I am 100% convinced that Wood probably had no knowledge of Gnosticism. I mean, I've said this on other shows. I think if you got in a time machine and went up to Wood, got back, you know, went into a time machine and went back to 1953 when he was making this thing and asked him, why did you cast Lugosi as the demiurge? I don't think you know what you were talking about. So there are these instances 
where this material does seem to be appearing regardless of the creator's intent. And I, th I think this is really some of the answer to what you would call movies as prophecy, uh, where movies seem to be predicting things um, prior to them actually happening. What I argue is that, so for example, um, if, if the collective unconscious and these forms, these shapes, these themes are, are inherited, could they also be predictive? Um, could they also be, you know, telltales of things to come? Uh, I think that's very possible. Um, so I think that, you know, that when you're dealing with the collective unconscious, yes, it can, it can be, you know, something that needs to be considered and needs to be talked about. But I think when you're looking at some of these films, you know, like the James Bond stories or, or some of these uh, other movies, you will clearly see that this occult symbolism, whether it be repetition or referencing or casting or whatever, um, or Gnosticism or alchemy, um, this is intentional by the filmmaker's design. I mean, I, I could just tell you, tell you just my own firsthand experience with this. I won't belabor this point. But for example, I'm not going to say what they are. I kind of like what the reader to figure this out. I wrote a novel. Um, which was published last year. Um, it was my first novel. And there are in that novel little esoteric themes hidden uh, in there. Little, you know, maybe you'd call some Easter eggs, some things going on inside the thing that are kind of hidden beneath the surface. So even as an author writing a novel, a work of fiction, I did it. Um, so, you know, I know other people, you know, whether it's novelists or screenwriters or movie makers, they're doing it as well. Predictive programming is, is a fascinating uh, area, and, and you seem to be suggesting that it's more prophetic. It's not necessarily intentional, uh, because there have been, for example, the, one of the famous examples uh, is a, it was a, a spinoff from the X-Files called The Lone Gunman, and in that series, they specifically, uh, in an episode, dealt with the bombing of the Twin Towers, and this was years before 9-11. Uh, there is a, a number of Simpson episodes that have also uh, been very predictive pro in, in their programming. One featured, you know, the election of Donald Trump years before. Oh, it's it's fascinating. Um, it's like synchronicity almost. Um, the Lone Gunman episode was a couple months uh, before it. I think it was like six or seven months before the actual event. Oh, yeah. I mean, and you will find some really bizarre ones out there that it's just head scratching. It's, you know, how, how is this possible? Um What's what's odd? What's odd with the 9-11 is, um, I mean, you have right, you know, I mean, there's this lead up to it where you have uh, the, the, in the Matrix movie, um, Neil Anderson's passport expires on, on September 11th, 2001. Um, and, and that movie, you know, has to do with, you know, the, the death of consciousness, the awakening of a new consciousness. So, I mean, you can look at the you know destructions of the Twin Towers as like the end of the old age, the start of the new age in 2000. Uh, with the Patriot, with Mel Gibson, he weighs his chair uh, at the very beginning in the barn, and he it weighs nine pounds eleven ounces, and then he sits on the chair and it comes crashing down. Uh, the 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 one that's uh, which which is synchronized is the Simpson episode uh, that you're talking about with nine eleven, where this is where Bart waves the money in front of the nine eleven, where the tra the trade towers are the eleven, and I think the program was like nine dollars or something. It's nine eleven. Um, what's really interesting about that is the timing of all this stuff. Uh, the, the Simpson episode occurred on, aired on, I believe it was September 21st, 1997. So you're dealing with about four or five years. It may have been 96. It was somewhere in there about four or five years prior to 9-11, almost to the day. And then 
two or two years after the Simpson episode aired, you have another 9-11 movie, a uh, fight club uh, that, that was released on the same day. Uh, it was released almost uh, two years prior to uh, 9-11 and two years after the Simpson episode. I believe it was the same day. It was September 21st, 1999. Um, and then in that one movie, I mean, my goodness gracious, you had at the end, the buildings coming crashing down. You have Tyler Durden calling it uh, ground zero you have uh, the destruction with Latte Thunder of the of the of the, of the uh, corporate art, which is the giant globe, um, and that's clearly referencing the globe uh, in the World Trade Center towers called the Sphere. Um, so you have all these nine, you know, synchronized almost to the date, right up to the lead up of this thing. Um, it's fascinating. Uh, the, the stuff with Trump is also weird, um, and there's some weird there's some weirder ones that what you're talking about with the Simpsons. Um, Trump in, I think it was 2010, made an, a television ad uh, for Serta mattresses uh, where he was counting sheep. And uh, the, the sheep that he's talking to, I believe, is number one. And then he goes out in the hallway and we see two other sheep guarding doors. And the, the sheep, uh, the numbers on the sheet are 11 and 9, uh, November 9th, uh, the, the day he won the presidency. And then you'll find this again earlier, um, this exact same symbolism years earlier in a movie called Gremlins 2. Uh, where you have this Donald Trump analog named Daniel Clamp, who is this uh, Manhattan real estate developer who's clearly supposed to be Donald Trump, but he comes out for an interview, and the two the two microphones shoved them in front of his face are from uh, are from the stations uh, eleven and nine again uh, November 9th, the day he won the presidency or the morning that he won the presidency. So it, it is it's just uncanny um, how this stuff seems to be prophetic, prophetic or predictive, um, in some form or fashion. I say in the book that it could be a collective unconsciousness working in reverse, that this is some sort of, uh, you know, prophetic vision. But I mean, this stuff is clearly going on, um, inside of movies, but I, I think it's kind of unexplainable. I mean, I, you know, I, I mean, I would find it hard to believe that, you know, the Wachowski siblings had knowledge of 9-11 two years beforehand, or the makers of Flight Club had had uh, knowledge of that. I mean, that seems to be a little bit, as a lawyer, a bit of a stretch. But on the other hand, it's irrefutable that the material's in there. So it, it does sort of defy explanation. It's, it's really hard to reconcile. How about uh, The Wreck of the Titan, uh, which is this 1898 novella, which mirrors almost exactly the actual sinking of the Titanic 14 years before. Yeah, I mean, it is. Um, you, you, you know, it, it is hard to reconcile this. I'll be the first to admit it. Um, you know, you have the Trump stuff. You have the stuff with 9-11. I've heard about the one with Titanic. Yeah, I mean, it, it's just, you know, it, it is. It's, it's just hard to reconcile. Um, but it is happening. So we got to account for it. I want to talk about Freemasonry in film because obviously this is a subject near and dear to your heart and, and uh, uh, the Book of Enoch uh, is something that you've dealt with uh, a, a great deal. I, I want to talk about the film National Treasure, which is, well, there were two films. It's, it's a terrific, a terrific uh, a film. Um, talk to me about uh, Freemasonry in National Treasure as a retelling of the Royal Arch of Enoch. Absolutely. This was um, this was sort of one of my one of my tip offs was the first National Treasure movie to how deep the symbolism was going in these movies. Um, the Royal Arch of Enoch was my first book that I published. And the last chapter uh, that I uh, wrote was about Masonic symbolism in film. And one of the movies that I talked about was the National Treasure movie, because although there is some obviously on the surface Masonic themes in that movie, there is a very deeper um, uh, esoteric Masonic uh, 
symbolism going on inside that movie. And, and it is that that movie literally is a cinematic version of this high degree ritual known as the Royal Arch of Enoch. It is literally a Masonic ritual put on celluloid. Uh, and again, this is something I dissected in my first book. Um, and it, the ritual just briefly documents it's part of the high degree system. Uh, it's part of the York Rite and the Scottish Rite. It's the uh, seventh degree in the York Rite. It's the 13th degree in the Scottish Rite. <clears throat> Excuse me. And what the ritual documents is the recovery of this Masonic Knights Templar treasure uh, in this subterranean treasure vault uh, beneath the Holy Ground in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount. Um, and what's the National Treasure movie? I mean, it's the exact same thing. It's the recovery of this Knight Templar Masonic treasure vault in a subterranean vault uh, beneath the holy ground. They place it in New York City, which is a reference to this very powerful and important Royal Arch Freemason named DeWitt Clinton, who was a uh, former mayor of New York and former governor of New York State. And it's the whole idea of finding, it's, it's going on this Masonic journey, following these clues to discover this uh, Masonic uh, subterranean uh, treasure vault. And that's exactly what the uh, ritual is in the, in the York Rite and the Scottish Rite. It's this uh, journey uh, to discover this Masonic Knights Templar styled treasure in a subterranean treasure vault concealed beneath the holy ground. So when you watch the first National Treasure movie, know that you are literally watching a Masonic ritual put on screen, put on the big screen, or put on your television set. Um, you are literally watching a Masonic ritual before your very eyes. What about his, actual historical events? Do they often reflect this the same sort of symbology? Let's say, since we're talking about National Treasure, like the formation of the United States. Many people think that that was a Masonic plot. It was a Masonic plot. Uh, they'd be correct to think that. Um, the, the, the This was something I document in the, in the first um, uh, book, was uh, that the uh, United States is essentially the world's first Masonic Republic. Um, the founders who created this country were by and large all Freemasons. Um, and when they were formulating this country, they knew what they didn't want. Uh, they did not want a monarchy and they did not want a Vatican-styled religious um, institution, a state-sponsored religion. They wanted, uh, they, they did not want that. So what they created instead was they created a Masonic Republic and, and the triple division of government in the United States. Uh, it comes from the Masonic Blue Lodge, where the government is triple divided between a worshipful master and two wardens. Uh, this is, of course, in the United States is the judiciary, the legislative branch and the executive. Um, you have the separation of church and state. This comes from James Anderson's Constitutions of the Freemasons. Excuse me, originally published in 1721, years earlier, where he essentially died best masonry of any religious affiliation. He said, basically, you have to be a deist. You have to believe in a supreme being. But if you're Christian, Muslim, Jew, Hindu, Buddhist, you can join. Uh, masonry does not promote any specific religion. It's just, it's deistic. Uh, so you, ha you know, and, and the founders were impressed with this. Furthermore, uh, in masonry, it was very egalitarian. It's very democratic. Um, people go through it. You can be you know, um, you, there's, there's no regard to economic status or social standing. Anybody can go through the lodge system and become a worshipful master. It's very democratic. So the founders were very impressed with this and um, basically used Freemasonry to craft a government around. 
and you will find all the hallmarks of Blue Lodge and high degree masonry, not only on the construct of the United States government, I mean, but my goodness gracious, on the architecture from everywhere from Washington, D.C. to the Erie Canal, uh, to Baltimore, Maryland, to St. Louis. Uh, this is something I talked about in my first book, The Royal Arch of Enoch. Um, and then just just to get, get into your question that you answered, yeah, I mean, movie makers can, you, you can find parallels in history um, with, with movies. Um, things that are going on. I mean, I, you know, you know, where they turn to a historical event. I mean, for example, um, we talked in the last show about Star Wars. Um, and when you watch uh, the the first Star Wars movie, this is episode four, um, there's this very reminiscent scene where you're introduced to Grand Moff Tarkin, who's played by Peter Cushion. And he comes into the, he's on the Death Star. And he comes in where the, the other you know, admirals are talking and they're saying, you know, how's the emperor going to maintain Republic and with the Galactic Senate and, and Tarkin comes in, he says, oh, well, you, you don't have to worry about that anymore. I think Vader's following right behind him. He says, the, the, um, he says, the emperor has dissolved the Galactic Senate, all vestiges, I mean, I'm just paraphrasing here. He says something to the effect of all vestiges of the old Republic have been washed, washed away. The, the, and one guy says, well, how will we maintain control? He says, well, the regional governors will rule by fear now. Um, and he said, that's how he will maintain control. Well, this comes straight out of history. Um, this is the English Civil War, where after Charles I was executed, uh, Oliver Cromwell uh, assumed control of the country as a military dictator. He's known as the Lord Protector. Um, and what he did was he dissolved parliament. And this is exactly what the emperor did. He purged the parliament and then he instituted a plan called the Major Generals, where he literally cut England up into different regions, different uh, areas to be governed by fear, to be governed by these major generals who answered directly to him. So this whole plan of the emperor is based on a historical event, uh, Oliver Cromwell and the institution of the major generals. So we, we can find in movies where, yeah, sure, uh, they will turn to history uh, for a motif or for an event and then incorporate that into a film. Uh, that's just another element at their disposal. If you're a fan of this podcast or my weekly syndicated radio program, The Conspiracy Show, why not consider becoming a supporter? Go to patreon.com forward slash strange planet. That's right. We've changed the name of our Patreon page. Patreon.com forward slash strange planet. And check out our three support tiers. The Truth Seeker tier the Whistleblower Tier, and the Star Chamber Tier. Donors can receive access to an exclusive monthly Google Hangout on air or a monthly live chat with me. You can also be eligible for a monthly draw and a chance to win Conspiracy Show and Conspiracy Unlimited merch. Patreon.com forward slash Strange Planet. Patreon.com forward slash Strange Planet. Your support is greatly appreciated. Richard has tiny talking insects living in his sock drawer. We are bags and we are living in Richard's sock drawer. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Robert W. Sullivan IV is here discussing occult symbolism in cinema. What do you mean by occult casting in film? Yeah, this is this is a very uh, interesting phenomenon, um, and this is something that really interests me. Um, and, and what these filmmakers do is, you know, we we talk a lot about symbols or occult themes in movies or esoteric ideas 
or you know religions or or movements or things like that one of the things that these filmmakers would do is actually um, cast an actor or an actress in a film for their cultural valances, for their for the for for to, to conjure another performance uh, that they may have performed in uh, to invest this current movie with these cultural ideas or these cultural valances that they bring to an, another movie. Um, one of the great, I mean, I talk about this in the first book, and I thought this was sort when I when I first started discovering this, I thought it was uh, rare. Um, but I've, I've seen it much more. I've seen it much more recently where they will actually employ an actor to subconsciously resurrect um, a, a previous um, performance that this actor did to give this movie this vibe almost. It's not, it's, it's not typecasting. I got to stress that it is not typecasting. Typecasting is when you're casting Bella Lugosi over and over and over again to play the boogeyman. It's not that. A great example of this, one of the best examples I can I can do to explain this is in the is in the Star Wars movie Episode Seven. Um, this was the Force Awakens. This was the, the not the last one, but the previous one before that. Where if you watch this movie very carefully, at the very beginning of it, you have this very um, hermit-like figure um, on this desert planet played by Max von Sydow, where he gives this little relic to the guy Poe Dameron, which is the last key to the map to find Luke Skywalker. Um, and then the First Order shows up and 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 the character played by Max von Sydow confronts Kylo Ren. Kylo Ren kills him and the movie progresses. And, it, and when I was watching this, it, it struck me over and over and over again. I thought, why would you cast Max von Sydow, this tremendous actor, to be in this five-minute little opening sequence in this movie? And he disappears, he's never seen again. It didn't make sense to me. I'm thinking to myself, anybody could have played this part. I mean, there's, there's really no reason for this. And it struck me like a ton of bricks. Um, this, this was a, a retelling. This is a replay of two Max von Sydow movies. And what it's doing is it's conjuring this imagery in your subconscious mind. And it's investing the First Order and Kylo Ren with the same imagery. Well, the, he played he played Jesus Christ in The Greatest Story Ever Told, right? No, well, that's not what they're going for ah. here. The, 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 um, the, the Max von Sydow character in, 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 um, in The Force Awakens, he's conjuring The Exorcist, ah. where, where, where von Sydow is this in the desert, remember the guy's on the desert, and he's a hermit, he's the Jesuit, and he confronts the dark evil lord in the desert, where he confronts the Pazuzu statue. That, that scene in Star Wars is a clever retelling of that scene, and it's investing the First Order with the demonism associated with Pazuzu. But then there's another movie where Von Sydow plays the exact same figure. He plays the hermit character in the desert, and he confronts the dark evil overlord and is eventually killed, which is Dune, uh, where Von Sydow plays uh, the one doctor to, who's helping the uh, Trades character on the desert planet Dune, and then he confronts the dark evil lord Harkonnen, and he's killed. So that entire opening sequence in Star Wars is designed to resurrect in your subconscious mind these earlier scenes of Ancido co confronting this dark evil figure in a desert setting, and it's investing the First Order with the viciousness of Harkonnen and the demonism of Pazuzu that these guys are really villainous. This is very clever. 
um, by filmmakers. And it's very adroit. It's a form of sorcery. And these guys are very, very expert at this. When I first started noticing this, I thought it was uh, a one-time thing. I thought, oh, this is this is an oddball thing. Um, you know, maybe it's not. I, in my research, I've discovered this is much more well-known, and it happens in more times than I thought. Um, and it's one of the most fascinating ideas when it comes to breaking down these movies. Is is a certain actor or as, actress actually employed to conjure these cultural valences that they bring from other parts. It's a fascinating study. You, you, you also cite two other examples from the movie Lost Highway, Robert Loggia and Bill Pullman. Uh, what was at work there? Absolutely. Um, the, the characters of Robert Loggia, this is, uh, this is a little middle finger salute by David Lynch. Um, that movie was released in February of 1997. And if you've seen Lost Highway, it's a great film. It's almost beyond interpretation. But um, it's a very good movie. I like it a lot. But again, don't look for any rational explanations. But the Robert Loggia character and the Bill Pullman character play two scumbags. Uh, they are the villains in the in the movie, and this is uh, David Lynch's a uh, way of giving the Hollywood blockbuster the proverbial middle finger. Um, Lynch has gone on saying that he hates Hollywood blockbusters. He thinks they're crap. He thinks they're trite. Uh, he can't stand the, the Hollywood blockbuster. Um, thinks they're not artistic. Thinks they're shallow. So by casting um, Logia and Paxton or Pullman, excuse me, he is giving the proverbial finger to the Hollywood blockbuster because those two same actors a few months earlier during the summer of 1996 were in the premier summer blockbuster known as Independence Day, where they wound up saving the world from space aliens and they were the heroes of that movie. So Lynch then, of course, to give the finger to the Hollywood blockbuster, turns around a few months later and casts them as utter scumbags. Very clever on Lynch's part to cast two former heroes of the summer blockbuster as two ultimate villains in Lost Highway. Very adroit, very clever by Lynch. Wasn't Robert Blake also in Lost Highway? That was like the last movie he made before he was... Uh, well, first convicted, later exonerated of murder. Right, that's right. Robert Blake plays the mystery man, uh, possibly one of my all-time favorite characters in a David Lynch uh, movie. And he he is really um, a personification of evil. He can go anywhere. Um, he's omnipresent. Um, he is just a living representation of evil. And uh, yeah, he, he plays this character called the mystery man who's all over the place. Um, and that's the whole point is evil is everywhere. Um, but he can only go where he's only invited. Um, this ties into um, religious ideas that evil has to be welcome. Um, that once you tie yourself to evil, then it can come into your life and then it can become everywhere. Um, and he even winds up saying that uh, to the one character. He says, I can only go where I'm only welcome. And this this is conjuring uh, this mythology associated with evil, associated with the devil, that the devil can only go where it's welcome. Uh, very interesting. And talk about predictive programming <laughs> with Robert Blake later becoming, uh, as I say, was con convicted of ev uh, convicted of murder, was uh, later exonerated, although many, many believe he, he was responsible for the murder of his wife. Oh, I agree. Um, yeah, very, very fascinating there. Um, Loja's, I mean, excuse me, Robert Blake's a very weird character anyway. Um, and his character in that movie is essential, is, is really odd. Um, so yeah, it, you know, it's a great movie. I love Lost Highway, but it's, uh, 
very difficult to interpret. Um, I do my best with it in cinema symbolism too. I think it ultimately boils down to um, a theology known as negative theology, which is um, sort of it, it doing, doing you become godlike by doing what God isn't. Um, and uh, this is uh, what's known as negative theology. This was codified in the fifth century by a uh, sort of pagan theologian known as Dionysus, the pseudo Arab agent. Um, and Lost Highway does incorporate a lot of negative theology aspects, but it's a very complex movie to say the least. You talk about how occult casting is, is a form of sorcery. And I, I want to talk about the very name Hollywood. Who came up with that name? Uh, and talk to me about the, the symbol, uh, the symbolism behind the name of Hollywood. Well, I, yeah, it's a great question. I don't know who actually uh, came, came up with it. I know that there are some people who believe it has to do with a holly tree. Um, I've heard this as well um, and using to cast spells. But to be honest with you, Richard, I've heard that, but I've never been able to pin it down. Um, it just seems to be talk. Um, I have heard that before, but um, I've never been able to research it satisfactorily. The idea so, that Merlin, Merlin uh, from the Arthurian legend, Merlin the wizard, his wand was fashioned from the wood of a holly tree. I've heard that, but again, I've researched it, but I've never come up with a satisfactory answer with it. So um, it's certainly possible, but um, I, I've never, I've never um, heard of heard. I mean, I've never been, I've heard it, but I've never been able to pin it down to my satisfactory, but to my satisfaction, excuse me. But it's without question that I mean, you know, that this medium is very mystical and is very influential. And make no mistake about it, they are drawing on a lot of ar arcane and as cult subject matters when they are producing movies, television shows. No question about that. What are your thoughts on the theory that the Illuminati control Hollywood? Well, I would be careful of using the word Illuminati. Um, when you say that word to me as a Freemason, I uh, think of um, the Adam Weishaupt group, um, you know, from the Enlightenment, who I think probably most people can agree with are defunct. Um, I certainly don't believe they exist. But if you're using the term Illuminati to refer to as sort of global engineers, uh, social elites, perhaps uh, elites, elites in Hollywood, yeah, you know, I'll go along with that and maybe painting with maybe a little bit of a broad stroke that I probably want to paint with. But, um, you know, when when you are, um, like I said, I mean, I don't know, you know, you know, you can have these cabals in Hollywood, certainly, you know, filmmakers. There is, I mean, my goodness gracious, when you're dealing with the formation of the Hollywood studios, studios a lot of these guys were Freemasons. Um you know, to me, it's more, I'm more interested in the occult symbolism that they're using in the films. Um, who runs Hollywood? You know, could they be associated with some sort of global cabal? I mean, it's certainly possible. Um, but I would, it's that the worm Illuminati isn't something that I really tie into. Like I said, I think of the Adam Weishaupt group uh, when, when that word said to me, but, you know, you know, are there global elitists? Are there, you know, global social engineers? Sure, of course. But, um, you know, is, and are these arcane symbols going on in movies? Absolutely. Or is there some sort of secret cabal that runs Hollywood? Yeah, it's possible, um, but I'm more interested in the symbolism that you actually see in the movie. We can't talk about uh, symbology in movies without talking about the great director, the late Stanley Kubrick. Um, oh, of course. You talk about his use of doubles and repetition in the movie The Shining. What, what do you mean by doubles and repetition, and what does it mean? 
Right. What what this is this is a great example of an expert filmmaker using repetition to convey this idea to the subconscious mind that the Overlook Hotel is this endless repetition cycle, which it is. Um, everything in the Overlook Hotel is repeating. Um, it's this idea of history repeating itself. Grady murdering the two children, Torrance becoming the killer and trying to murder his wife and kid, the two people. Um, Kubrick seems to be so obsessed with this that he just repeats everything over and over again to convey this notion that the the best way I can describe it is that the or, that the uh, Overlook Hotel is this endless Ouroboros, um, just constantly repeating and never ending almost. And the way he does this is he uses doubles, um, you know, again, light and dark, good and evil. I mean, you have everything in this movie is presented in doubles. I mean, we have two sets of twins. We have the little girls. And then when Ullman is showing the Torrance is the room, he's passed by an older set of twins. Um, we have two boilers. We have two tennis balls. Um, we have two mazes, the hedge maze outside, um, the maze inside the hotel, which is the corridors. Everything is in doubles with this movie. We have repetition. We have repetition of numbers. Um, the, the number twelve is repeated. Uh, KDK twelve is the number of the uh, is the hotel. Um, we have uh, what is it? The room two three seven. If you add that up, you get the number twelve. Um, there are twelve uh, jugs of black molasses. Um, Jack throws the ball against the wall 12 times. He hits the door with the axe 12 times. Um, the number 42 is repeated. Danny wears the number 42 on his jacket, on his uh, T-shirt at the beginning of the movie. The movie that uh, Wendy and Danny are watching in the hotel is the summer of 42. Multiply two times three times seven, you get the number 42. The number 42 is on Scatman Crothers' license plate at the end. Everything in this movie is repetition, doubles. And why Kubrick is doing that is he is conveying, blasting, literally blasting your subconscious mind with the idea that the or that the uh, Overlook Hotel is an endless repetition cycle that is constantly in repeating cycles. But what? Um, but why those numbers? Why twelve? Why forty-two? You you can look at it several different ways. Um, they they are very deep biblical numbers. Uh, Twelve in the Bible is a, is a very um, deep deep biblical uh, significance. You can look at Jack becoming the embodiment of evil. Um, one of the things that Kubrick does in the movie is a timing. Um, this is something you're you're also going to want to look at when watching a movie. When do things happen on screen? Um, for instance, in The Shining. Um, when Jack consumes the alcohol, and this is essentially when he opens himself to the demons, when the darker side takes over, that occurs at 66 minutes, six seconds into the movie, 666. Um, so we have the idea of Jack becoming this antichrist figure, this very demonic character by consuming the alcohol um, at 66 minutes, six seconds into the film. So the number 12 again, 12 apostles. 12 uh, tribes of Israel, very deep biblical number there, conveying this overarching theme of light versus dark um, that's going on inside it. I mean, you know, it's winter months, but he's hanging out in the solar gold room, uh, this, you know, constant um, perpetual cycle of light versus darkness. Another great example, and I'll keep this kid friendly, family friendly, I'll just mention it at this, another great example of... Um, of uh, uh, timing in a movie, um, and I'll, the 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 uh, certainly the listeners will know what I'm talking about. I don't have to do any further explanation. Is the movie Black Swan, which is by Darren Aronofsky, who is another one of these grand masters when it comes to esoteric symbolism. Uh, in Black Swan, the lesbian scene between Mila Kunis and Natalie Portman, 
Portman occurs at exactly 69 minutes into the movie. <laughs> so, so, t- so timing is, is something else these guys use um, to, to bombard your subconscious mind with. But yeah, the, the, the Shining with Kubrick is just a fantastic example of repetition to convey um, this whole notion of the Overlook Hotel being this symbolic Ouroboros for, forever biting its tail. So did you have the timing of those those scenes? Did you actually go back like with a stopwatch? Did someone did someone else point that out or did you figure that out? No, I, I, I went back with a stopwatch. <laughs> um, and, and I have the Blu-rays here and a lot of times when you pause it, the time will come up on the screen. I've done this with several movies. Um, I won't get too, too belabored with it because it's a large talking point, um, but Crimson Peak, uh, Guillermo de Toro, who also uses a lot of symbolism, he, he does something similar that Kubrick does in The Shining um, with Crimson Peak um, that I had to sit there and time it out with. Um, so no, this is something I do. Um, and believe me, Richard, uh, when I tell you, um, like I said, you know, it's a deep study. I have to watch these movies more than once uh, to pick up on these deep, these really deep esoteric themes. I'm constantly jumping around from the beginning to the end or different parts because I might see something at an end that refers to something at the beginning or vice versa. Um, it's, it's, it's almost a never ending study. I mean, believe me when I tell you, um, you know, some of these movies that are really symbolic, it's almost every time I watch them, I pick up on something new. Um, so much so that like a movie like Black Swan, I did a whole chapter of it, chapter on it or a portion of it in cinema symbolism. And there was so much overload. I had to put it in symbolism part two. And then I rewatched it again recently and I saw some new material in it. So some of these movies are just so overwrought uh, with, with esoteric themes, symbolism, that it, it really is almost like a never ending study. I mean, it's almost like every time I see the movie, I pick up on something new. Have you ever thought of going into film directing? No, no, I, I've never really thought about that. I like writing about it. I like talking about it. Um, but that's about it. I've never considered directing a movie. But certainly if anyone ever needed any help uh, with planting stuff in a movie, um, I probably could help them with that. Um, I know what to look for, so I could probably help them with what their movie's about, depending what the context of the movie is. Um, I probably could help them with that, though. Robert, tell us uh, how we get a hold of these books. Absolutely, Richard. Well, thank you again for having me on uh, your show today. Um, my website is my name. My name is Robert W. Sullivan IV. So the fourth is the, letter, is the letter I, the letter V for the fourth, like the Roman numerals. And my website is just that. It's www.robertwsullivaniv.com. Uh, there are links to buy the books at this website. You can get them on all the major online retailers, Kindle, Amazon, Barnes & Noble. The print edition is available. The eBooks are available. Um, they're sold on all major online retailers. The site is very e- easy to na- navigate. It's constantly updated with radio appearances such as this one, upcoming shows. Uh, follow me on my social media, Twitter, Facebook. Um, watch other shows and listen to the shows I've done. I have a YouTube channel. So uh, just go to the website. Again, links to buy the books. They're available on all the major online websites. Uh, they're available on overseas. So if you're on Canada or in England, they're available on the Amazon Canada site or the England Can- Canada site, www.robertwsullivaniv.com. It's a very easy site to navigate. Robert, always a delight. Thank you for this two-parter. Well, thank you, Richard, for having me on. I look forward to it when uh, the new book comes out. My pleasure. Looking forward to it as well. Bye-bye. All right. Before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'm going to tell you a little bit about what's coming up next on Conspiracy Unlimited. 
Hey, this is Tony Merkel, host of The Confessionals, a blog talk radio podcast that brings you weekly interviews with eyewitness accounts of strange and unexplained events. From paranormal activity to UFO encounters to Bigfoot sightings, step into The Confessionals as we explore mysterious real-life stories. Check us out on your favorite podcast app or theconfessionalspodcast.com. And many thanks to Conspiracy Unlimited for having me on the air. I'll see you all on The Confessionals. Join me Friday. Christian Cadieux from Paranormal Contractors will be here. Plus, unraveling the Paul is Dead legend. Brian Epstein was told that there's no more live performances. And the reason why they did that was because the probability that people would pick up on the difference uh, would have been fairly high because Bill is taller than biological Paul. Billy stands around six foot two. Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting. <laughs> <laughs>